This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning and welcome to Anchor Church Online. Uh, my name is Jeff. If this is a f- if this is your first time uh, with us, a very warm and special welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here. And I just want to say, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, we as Christians don't think that faith in God is something that is antithetical to science. Faith in God doesn't mean that you leave your brains at the door, and certainly your real lived experiences are not meant to be detached from abstract concepts about God. And if you do call yourself a Christian, and going to church is part of your weekly routine, or watching a church service is part of your weekly routine, we acknowledge that this doesn't mean that your faith is perfect. This doesn't mean that you know your intellectual, your emotional, and existential questions are always met with the perfect answers or solutions. So this series, Deconstructing God, is meant to address some of those deep knots in your faith, if you are a Christian, And equally, if you're not a Christian or simply dipping your toes into Christianity, we want to acknowledge the multiple barriers that exist between you and coming to faith in the God of Christianity. More importantly, we want to journey with you without judging you and without sugarcoating the rough bits. We want to take an honest look at what it means to be Christian without glossing over the hard bits of Christianity. Well, this morning, I have the unenviable task of talking about one of the most painful, horrific, and heart-wrenching truths that we as Christians believe. This is the doctrine of hell. Now, just as an aside, if you want to know more about hell and what hell is and what hell isn't, what the Bible says that hell is and what hell isn't, uh, there's a separate video called Five Myths About Hell. Please have a look at that video straight after this talk if you want to know exactly how to think about hell and what its nature is and how God speaks about it. Um, So if you are a seasoned Christian or whether you're just dipping your toes into Christianity, I'm sure it will be worthwhile. Speaking of which, if you're not a Christian, you might be sitting here and thinking, what is the point of all this? After all, hell is this regressive belief from the dark ages that no one really believes in today. Why should it matter to me? But from a 2018 Australian Values survey, more than 30% of people still believe in hell. Now, what we believe in hell varies quite considerably and is on a spectrum, but it still stands that hell is still a relevant topic to be talking about because people still believe it. If you are a Christian, you might be feeling a bit uncomfortable about hell. You might feel uncomfortable talking about it and even uncomfortable thinking about it. Or you might have sort of accumulated a number of questions over the years about hell that may have started to erode your faith. You might start to think, can a God who is good and loving send people to hell? And should I be believing in such a God? Should I even be a Christian? Well, we're going to be looking at three such questions today. We're going to be exploring three difficult questions regarding what hell is and how we as Christians should be thinking about it. 
The first question is, how can a good and perfect and loving God send people to hell? How can a God who has given these given us these amazing things like friends and family and food and all these wonderful things of life send people to a horrific place called hell where they'll be separated from God for all of eternity? Well, for me, uh, this is actually quite a deep and personal question and if the and if there was ever a crisis in my faith it was when I first thought deeply about what hell meant and its implications in 2012 I went back to the place of my birth India Um, as a family we try to go back every once in a while and uh, it's mostly to visit extended family but this time we thought we actually haven't seen much of the rich cultural heritage that is India there was just so much of my own culture that I hadn't experienced or even was aware of. So we decided to do some touristy things and we ended up in the southernmost tip of India in a place called Kanyakumari, which is pretty much at the doorstep of Sri Lanka. And it was absolutely incredible. It was eye-opening because it was filled with just the most magnificent monuments and temples and there were people from all over the world and all over the country there. I think there were more than 20 or 30,000 people there at one time. There was one point where we got to a bit of a lookout and I could see all of these pilgrims that had traveled from all over the world from the very top of this lookout. I could see them falling face flat on the floor, prostrate towards their gods. They were so sincere. They were so devout. That's when the penny dropped for me. Up until that point, I was so thankful to God that he had saved me from hell. But for the first time, seeing all those people there, I felt miserable for them. Surely our God, our good, perfect and loving God would not send us to hell. Yet that is exactly what I kept reading in the Bible. The Bible kept telling me that A, hell was real, B, hell was conscious, C, hell was eternal, and D, hell was final. I came home to Sydney depressed. I've never actually been uh, clinically depressed before, but those two weeks after I returned from India were some of the darkest moments of my life. I kept picturing those droves of pilgrims falling into the pit of hell. I kept picturing their faces in agony, all because they had believed in the wrong God, or because they were ignorant, or because they didn't know Jesus. Despite the fact that they might have lived amazing lives, despite the fact that they may have been so religious and devout and committed to their faith, despite the fact that they had tried so hard. After I cheered up a little bit, um, I threw myself into as many books as I could find about hell. I read book after book after book. And for a whole year, that's all I thought about. That's all I read about. And that experience of the intellectual pursuit of finding out about hell was in of itself quite depressing. And I don't recommend that for everyone. You may or may not be able to relate to this experience, but the question still stands. How can a good, loving and perfect God send people to hell? And 
There has certainly been at least one thing that has helped me as I've thought about it and I, as I've read about this concept of hell. And that is to actually not start with hell and that is to not actually start with what even the Bible says about hell, as important as that is. I think the solution here is to start with what the Bible tells us about who God is and to understand his nature before we start thinking about hell. Now, I'm not sure about you, but growing up, I had several conceptions about God. I had a picture in my mind about how uh, God is like and what God is like. And to me, I described God in my head as being the best at everything. So if I'm strong, then God is infinitely stronger. If I'm smart, then God is infinitely uh, smarter. So I thought about God in analogy to me in terms of human characteristics like physical strength or intelligence. The reference point then for me to understand God was in terms of who I was as a human being and what I could do. He had the same attributes as me, but he was just infinitely better at those attributes than I was. I think to a certain extent this is true. God is the best at everything. But the Bible tells us something that is quite profound that I actually completely missed when I started to think about hell. In Revelation chapter 4, we get a window into heaven, a little window into what's going on in the throne room of God. And we see all these heavenly creatures worshipping God and adoring Him. Now, they don't say that God is love, which He definitely is. They don't say that God is merciful, which He definitely is. They don't say that God is all-powerful, which He also obviously is. What they say over and over again, presumably for eternity past and for eternity future, is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the word holy, I associate that with religiosity or uptightness. But that's not really what holy means. Holy means to be set apart, to be different. Different, different, different is our God. What this means is God is in a different category. He's a different order of being. He cannot be compared to humans. To a certain extent, we can't even fully understand his nature. He is in an entirely different category. He's a different order of being because he is the creator and we are his creation. He didn't have a beginning, but we do have one. We have our limitations, but he is limitless. God is a different order of being. To give you a small analogy of this, um, my parents have a dog called Archimedes, and we call him Aki for short. Um, Aki is a Shih Tzu cross poodle, so he's a perfect mix of intelligence on the one hand and yappiness on the other hand, producing a not so good temperament. And Aki is not a very predictable dog. When my wife and I had our baby daughter, Zoe, we would take her over to my parents' house and my parents would tie up Aki in the backyard, fearing that he would get jealous and have a go at Zoe. Now, Aki is an inside the house kind of dog, so he would absolutely hate it. He would be miserable. He would cry and he would make this big fuss. But the truth was, my parents were the owners. They could do what they wanted to. 
to um, Aki and it was up to them because for them, protecting Zoe was more important than Aki's comfort. Here there's a clear difference, isn't there, between the order of being. There's a clear category difference between Aki and a human being. You can't tie up a human in your backyard without having serious consequences. There are certain rights a human being has that a dog does not have. As owners of Aki, my parents have certain rights over Aki. They can do certain things with Aki that they cannot do with any other human being. This is because you and me and every other human being is a different order of being. Yes, dogs are beautiful creatures. They're incredible creatures. But when we compare the value, function and rights of a dog to us, it just doesn't even come close. This is because a dog and a human are in a different category altogether. Let's take this a step closer. Think about the distance between you and a dog. Now think about the distance and difference between you and a ladybug. At least, you know, Aki sort of kind of gets you. At least your dog knows when you're sad. It's actually quite incredible that animals, especially dogs, can do that. But a ladybug does not understand you. A ladybug doesn't get you. A ladybug has an entirely different set of attributes to you. A ladybug is in a different order of being to you. Now think about you and God. If there is an X difference between you and a ladybug, there's an infinite distance between you and God. It doesn't even compare. God is in a different order of being to you and me. What does this mean? This means that when we come to this difficult topic of hell, we've got to come to it with a sense of intellectual humility. Yes, our emotions are important. Yes, we can't sort of suppress the fact that we feel so heartbroken for people who are going to hell. Yes, our concern for others' destinies are important. Yes, our compassion for others is important. But at the same time, what is important is humility because God is so big and different to us. This is because He is a different order of being. And everyone is valuable, everyone is important, but at the same time, we've got to be aware that God is someone that we can't fully understand. As my old pastor used to say, we have to be careful that we do not become more merciful than God. Not only is this not possible, but what that doesn't take into account is the fact that God is different to us and he's greater than us and he's bigger than us. Now, when I say this, this might come across as a very unsatisfying answer to you. But it stands that the reason that you can't even send your worst enemy to hell, yet God sends people to hell, and the fact that we can't wrap our heads around this is because God is different to us. He's bigger than us. He's greater than us. My parents can tie up Aki in the backyard since they have the bigger picture, but Aki doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. In the same way, we haven't even begun to comprehend how big and different God is. And if we're struggling to understand how big and different God is, that is fine because we are finite beings with emotions that are fickle. 
Yet God is big and great. And we will never wrap our heads completely around what that means. At this point, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I don't fully understand why God sends people to hell. I sort of get that, you know, people need to be punished because God is a fair judge. But what I don't understand and the real problem of hell for me is not hell itself, but the duration. Eternity is a long time. It's a very, very, very long time. It seems like an awfully disproportionate sentence, doesn't it? I mean, a a murderer, a serial killer might get, what, 30, 40 years max? Why should my friend, who is a nice, respectable, kind person, get eternity? If the first place to understand hell is to look at God and who he is, the next place we've got to turn to is who we are. The Bible is clear. Despite the fact that there is this infinite distance between us and God, despite the fact that there is this differentness, this bigness that God has that we do not have, God still values us. He still loves us. He valued us so much that this infinitely great and different God became like us. In fact, he became us in his son, Jesus. Just because he's different doesn't mean he doesn't care about us. Doesn't mean he doesn't value us. Doesn't mean that he doesn't like us. But it's also very easy to forget why it is that Jesus came. Why it is that Jesus died. As Christians, we just don't think that Jesus suffered some injustice on the cross and he was just a nice man who died because the law was against him. We actually believe that Jesus came to take our place on the cross. He came to take the wrath, which is the perfect justice of God that we deserve. That is what we call hell. What we call hell is the fact that God is meant to punish us because his righteous justice demands it because we have broken his laws. That is what hell is and that is what Jesus came to save us from. God sent his son in love to save us from the wrath of God so that we can be united with him. But you know what? Just because uh, as Christians we believe that we're safe from hell doesn't mean that we walk around like Jesus all the time. We don't think that we're perfect people and certainly it doesn't uh, take a genius to work that out. It doesn't mean that we're perfectly enlightened in every way. In fact, we still have the effects of brokenness in us. And we see it in our bodies, in our aches and pains. We see it in the world with with epidemics and civil tensions. But often what we overlook is that our very moral compass is broken. Our sense of right and wrong is off. Ever since our first parents ate of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, our sense of good and evil became misaligned from God's sense of good and evil. Often what we think is right is the very thing that is wrong and vice versa. There was a time, unfortunately, when the large majority of the world, especially the Western world, thought that slavery was perfectly fine. In hindsight, that's obviously wrong, isn't it? In the same way, we hold certain beliefs today that in a few centuries time, people will look back and be horrified about. We're totally blind to it now, but in the future, people will look back at us and be like, what were these people thinking? I think one of these things that we will realize at the end of history 
is how wrong we were about how serious our sin is. How wrong we were about how catastrophically we have broken God's laws in God's world. How wrong we were to think that God's laws and how we have broken them doesn't demand so great of a punishment. Unfortunately, you and I have a broken, stunted, insufficient view of God's justice and what that entails. The Bible tells us that the way to look at the penalty we deserve for breaking God's laws is to not actually look at the laws of our conscience or the laws of the nation, but the laws of God. We have broken the laws of God. We have broken the laws of this infinitely superior, this different category being. You know, Aki might think perhaps he doesn't deserve to be outside in the backyard locked up. He might think, you know, a few nips and bites, who cares? Why am I stuck here? Let me in. And he might feel that it's an entirely disproportionate sentence in his limited frame of mind. But he, in his limited capacity, does not see that that is exactly what he deserves. And I also want to say that we have to be precise about what hell is. We have to be biblical about what hell is. And we have to understand what the Bible says what hell is, especially in terms of why it is eternal. In the Bible, we never ever see one instance of anyone ever repenting or saying sorry in hell. Just as they had chosen to live a life apart from God in this life, they continue to choose to live a life apart from God in the next life. You know, this is really summed up very well by uh, C.S. Lewis when he says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So in a sense, hell is not so much God sending us over to this place of punishment, which it also is, but that's not the end of it. It's almost as if we in our addictions to sin, we in our love for sin, want to be away from him. And God just gives us exactly what we wanted all along. You know, the definitive story of this in the Bible is that of um, the rich man and the poor man Lazarus in the Gospel of Luke. We read that uh, there is this really, really rich man who's lived a life of luxury. And outside his house is a poor man called Lazarus who's begging there with sores all over his body. We read that um, the two men die and uh, in the next life, their fortunes are reversed. So the rich man ends up in the bad place. And Lazarus, the poor man, ends up in the good place. And you would think that this rich man in the bad place, he would be totally contrite and sorry for all the things that he had done. But you know what he says? He's not very comfortable, that's for sure. But in his discomfort, he says, Lazarus, why don't you go get me a glass of water? I'm really thirsty. Even in hell, even in a place where he's separated from God, the rich man is still ordering Lazarus around. He is still holding on to his sense of entitlement and superiority, and he still thinks he is better than Lazarus. It's not as if he gets to, he gets to hell and he thinks, oh, I'm a changed man now, please God, let me back in. No. He is still ordering Lazarus around. 
I want to say this very carefully and very clearly. The reason that the punishment in hell is eternal because that is because the dead don't stop sinning. Let me repeat that again. The reason that the punishment in hell is eternal is because the dead don't stop sinning. And I don't expect us to come to terms with all of this all emotionally. It's extremely difficult for me as I think about this. It's extremely difficult for me to process this. But at the same time, we have to realize that it's not as if God's judgment is unfair. The dead don't stop sinning. But you might be sitting there and thinking, you know, it's actually much worse than that. I don't have a problem with all of these other things, but I have a problem with something else about hell. What about people who don't actually know anything about Jesus? What about people who know very little about God? What happens to them? What happens to all those pilgrims that I saw when I was in India? What happens to your friend and my friend? Do they go to hell as well? This is a very deep and difficult question for me. And this is something that I grapple with every single day. Just as we have to be careful not to be more merciful than God, we equally have to be careful that we don't speak more than God about a certain topic. Well, what does the Bible say about this particular topic? The Bible tells us at least two truths that help here. Truth number one is it tells us that Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only way to escape the wrath of God, which is called hell. There is no other name that is given on earth or under heaven by which we can be saved. There is no life you could have possibly lived. There is no other person you could have possibly followed. There is no good deed that you could have possibly done in order to be reconciled to God. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to God. That is truth number one. At the same time, the Bible also tells us that God is a fair and compassionate judge. The Bible tells us that God judges fairly. He's much fairer than any human judge that you might have heard about. And this actually comes out very nicely in Romans chapter 2, where there's a clear picture of how God judges. God judges on the basis of what we know. Let me repeat this because, again, this is quite crucial to answering this question. God only judges us based on what we know. But here's the thing. What we can't do here is start to connect the dots. I don't think God has given us that freedom. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't see how these two truths gel together perfectly. I don't see how faith in Jesus and how that's the only thing that can help us to be reconciled to God can be reconciled with the fact that God judges purely on the basis of what we know when we need to know about Jesus to be reconciled back to God. I don't see how these two things come together perfectly. But we can't join the dots here. We ought, to be, we ought to let God be God, and we've got to put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis. What happens to those pilgrims that I saw? I have no idea. All I know is that they desperately need to hear about Jesus because he is the only way to God. At the same time, I also know that God will judge fairly, and he will do what is right, and I don't know what that verdict will be until the end of history. 
The reason we can't connect the dots in these cases is because we need to put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis. And we need to be silent where the Bible stays silent. Does this mean we don't ask questions? Of course not. Does this mean we don't struggle with these deep emotional um, problems about hell? Of course not. I think we need to be asking questions and we need to be raising problems in the context of faith. We need to be struggling with these things with God rather than against Him. Just and, and I want to say that we need to be reading and talking and 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 uh, thinking about these things with a clear mind, knowing that the God of the Bible has made the clear truths very clear to us. We need to be thinking about hell, knowing that God has made the essentials, the foundations very clear to us. We can't let the unclear truths fog our mind or shake our foundations when the clear truths speak clearly to us. We need to put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis. So where is the emphasis in the Bible about hell? What does the Bible say about hell at the end of the day? Well, before I get there, let me tell you a story. The wedding is on and the bridal party has been decided. The date has been set, the invitations are out, and it's, the, it's one week out from the wedding and the hens is in full swing. The bride and the bridesmaids have escaped to this nice secluded island to party away. This is pre-COVID, by the way, in case you couldn't tell. And they arrive at the nice island and, and the music is on, the food is out, the, the, the drinks are out. And this is the last hurrah for the girls before the bride ties the knot. So they decide to party away. Um, the responsible bride, bridesmaids party responsibly and they catch a flight back home with the bride on time, giving themselves ample time before the wedding to be prepared. The other half of the bridesmaids decide to go absolutely crazy. They go nuts. They party away because they're the bridesmaids and if anyone deserves a party, it's them. Well, they end up waking up from a hangover and realize that they have missed the flight. Well, lucky for them, there is not still another flight that they can book, but unfortunately, that flight only gets back to where they need to be on the day of the wedding. They have no other option, so they book it in. They land and they quickly uh, catch the first cab that they can find and head straight to the wedding menu. But they get stuck in traffic and there's no time for makeup and hair. And even worse, they can't head to their homes and grab their bridesmaids dresses. But they're thinking to themselves, we're the bridesmaids. Surely no one can be angry at us. They eventually arrive at the chapel and lo and behold, the wedding ceremony is over. The bride and groom and the rest of the uh, bridesmaids and, and, and um, the bridal party have moved on. They think to themselves, well, at least they can make the reception menu. They, they eventually rock up the reception menu and they're stopped by the ushers. And they, they tell the ushers, we're the bridesmaids, let us in. The usher looks at them and looks at what they're wearing. One's wearing sneakers and another one's wearing shorts and another one has hair that looks like it's been electrocuted. And it's just too hard to believe at this point that these girls are the bridesmaids. The usher goes in and gets the groom anyway, just to double check, just to make sure that these are the bridesmaids. The groom comes out, 
He's visibly unhappy. He knows how much his now bride has been hurt by these bridesmaids. The bridesmaids wave and carry on thinking it'll all blow over. But the groom looks at them and says, I don't know them. Who are they? He walks back to the party. Their faces sink. They are in hell. This is a modern retelling of one of uh, Jesus' last parables of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew chapter 25. Now Jesus tells this parable to kind of explain what kind of people will go to hell. Now in this story, the unprepared, ungrateful, uh, entitled bridesmaids are in hell. Not strangers, not the guests, not the other bridesmaids who had made it back on time, but the bridesmaids who had stayed back and partied away and had been totally unprepared for the big day. They have been excluded from the party. They are not allowed in. They have offended the groom, the bride and the guests. They are in hell. But who are the bridesmaids in the story? Well, you might have heard that Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, which is true. But often what we fail to realize is that Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible to and about those who profess to be religious, those who profess to be the people of God, those who profess to be the so-called covenant people of God, but are actually hypocrites. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament does not shy away from hell, does not shy away from the fact that there is real judgment for those who don't trust in Jesus. But the emphasis and the overwhelming purpose of hell is almost always directly um, directed at the so-called people of God, the Pharisee or some hotshot at church. Hell, more than it being a warning for those outside the church is a warning for those inside of it. Just because you are a bridesmaid does not mean you will be admitted to the party. In other words, just because you say you're a Christian, just because you go to church every Sunday, just because you tithe, just because you play in the band at church, just because you preach does not mean you will be admitted, does not mean you will be included. Jesus is warning about an empty faith, a counterfeit faith, a faith that doesn't produce love. Jesus is warning that those who profess only with lip service but are not changed inwardly are in great danger. And I say this with a heavy heart and with full recognition of my own hypocrisies because I feel it. But as Christians, unfortunately, we have become so preoccupied with either ignoring hell altogether or preaching hell to those outside the church with fire and brimstone that we have forgotten that Jesus is speaking to you and to me. He is talking to us about hell. Now, if you are a Christian, I don't want to fill you with dread. This is not my purpose. And that is not the Bible's purpose. The Bible is very clear. The Bible is clear that if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. There are no ifs and buts. There are no conditions to be met. There are no list of things you've got to do before approaching God. There is no need to second guess that. And you can rest in that confidence and that assurance. 
But at the same time, if our faith does not produce any change, if it is a dead faith, that I think Jesus is speaking directly to that. If our status as bridesmaids does not actually make us a good mate to the bride, but instead becomes selfish, self-centered, and totally focused on ourselves, then there is great danger there. I also want to be crystal clear here about another thing, which is that our motivation to love God and to others is not driven by the fear of hell. I want us to be very careful to know that that it's the love of God that propels us forward in our Christian life to love God and to love others. But at the same time, these warning passages about wrath and about hell are the guardrails that keep us from falling off that journey. And, you know, Paul understood this perfectly. This great man who had started churches and preached these amazing sermons and written half the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. In other words, he's saying he doesn't get carried away with his own selfish and self-centered desires. Why? So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is perfectly aware that it's not about his ministry. It's not about what he's done. It's not about how many people he's preached to but it's whether his faith has truly transformed him. And I'm, I want to say here, no one's faith is perfect, right? No one is perfect all the time. We're all flawed. God is not expecting a perfect faith. But at the same time, he's expecting a faith that is real, a faith that actually transforms. And unsurprisingly, this is actually a common theme in so many of Jesus's parables as well. For me, this was a turning point. Here I was all this time worrying about these pilgrims and what their eternal destinies would be and where they would go. But here was Jesus speaking to me. This parable is directed at the religious types, those within the church, to make sure that we're not being hypocrites. It's directed at us. Hell is a horrible, horrendous doctrine. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think I'll take the heaviness of hell to the grave. I don't think I'll fully understand or fully comprehend how it is that people go to hell and the fact that it is so painful and the fact that it is so alienating from God. But at the same time, hell is also true. It is most true when we apply it carefully and when we give it the emphasis that the Bible gives it. The flip side is that it's the same Bible that tells us that it is Jesus who came down, took on human flesh, died for our sins, suffered the wrath of God, which is hell, on our behalf. And he died for all of our hypocrisies, all of our failures, all of our fakeness, so that we could be reconciled to him, so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. We will not have to experience the wrath of God or hell if we put our faith in him, a faith that is authentic, a faith that leads to love. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for reminding us from your words that hell is real. 
we don't fully understand this God. We don't understand how something horrific and horrendous as this exists. And the reason we don't understand it is because we don't understand you fully. You are so big and great and your sense of justice is much greater than ours. We also acknowledge that you are a good and perfect judge. You are far more compassionate than us. And we also acknowledge that we have been, as Christians, we have been so guilty of of preaching hell to those outside the church so vehemently that we have forgotten that God is speaking to us. Lord, may we pray and may we understand that our faith ought to be real, that our faith ought to produce love. And at the same time, we thank you that Jesus has died for us and has given us this confidence that if we trust in him, we will be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.